0: Welcome, this talk was recorded at Insight LA in Long Beach. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit us at InsightLA.org. Um, the myth of Sisyphus. Sisyphus and his rock.
1: Um...
0: So, um, in Greek mythology, Sisyphus was the king of Cornet, and he was punished for his craftiness, his selfishness, deceitful qualities, and um, the punishment was that he was forced to roll an immense boulder up a steep hill, only to watch it come back to him. Um, falling back down the hill and repeating this action for eternity. And it was because he believed that he was so clever, his cleverness surpassed Zeus himself. And so Zeus, clever Zeus, enchanted the boulder into rolling away from Sisyphus before he reached the top, which consigned him to an eternity of useless efforts and unending frustration. Has anyone ever experienced <laughs> useless efforts and yes. unending frustrations?
1: <laughs>
0: have you been rolling that rock up the hill?
1: <laughs>
0: Isn't it amazing? I know many times in my life it has felt like I have rolled that rock up the hill, only to have it fall again and then to roll. I don't need to go into any more detail. You're getting it, right? So, um, in his book, Joseph Goldstein um, wrote about Sisyphus and the Rock, and I'll read it to you. Um, And um, he talks about, um, it was in the chapter on renunciation, which we spent a couple of talks on, Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, I, I almost thought I would tease all of you and write the, the title of this talk is Let Go, Part 3. Then, <laughs> anyway, um, so he says um, that um, he's, he's quoting, um, let's see if I can find it, Stephen Mitchell in his wonderful book, Parables and Portraits, clearly depicts the possibilities Um, when he writes about Sisyphus. And he says, um, We tend to think of Sisyphus as a tragic hero, condemned by the gods to shoulder his rock sweatily up the mountain, again and again, up the mountain forever. The truth is that Sisyphus is in love with his rock. He cherishes every roughness and every ounce of it. He talks to it, he sings to it. It becomes the mysterious other. He even dreams of it as he sleepwalks upward. Life is unimaginable without it, looming always above him like a huge gray moon. He doesn't realize that at any moment he is permitted to step aside and let the rock hurtle down to the bottom and go home. Tragedy is the internal force of the mind. So I read this and I thought, no, no, they've got it all wrong, (laughs) right? Um, Sisyphus doesn't love the rock, right? We don't love these patterns that we fall into um, and these repetitions in psychology, we call it repetition compulsion for the therapist in the room, right? Um, these things we repeat over and over again, even though we don't want to, like, no, we don't love that. We hate that. Or we, we don't want that. If, if we could stop, we would. Um, so the question in my mind became this contemplation. Um, do we cling to the rock or do they cling to us? Do these tendencies, are we clinging or is a condition clinging? And I don't really have an answer as much as proposing this as an open question for all of you to answer. Because I don't have one. Um, But you all know that moment of going up the hill again with the rock. Whether it's um, changing your behavior, changing a communication pattern, changing the way we deal with anger setting boundaries, relationships, habits, good and bad. We've all been there at the rock. And you know that line, I can't believe I did this again, right? I can't believe I said this again. I can't believe I had the same relationship again, right? Um, So why does this happen? Let's look at a few examples and see if we can unpack it in terms of the Buddha's teachings. And I'm going to suggest one hypothesis to you, and that is we push the rock up the hill out of what the Buddha calls ignorance, abhija. Not knowing the way things are and not really knowing the conditions of the mind, of the body-mind. So we fall into this pattern out of ignorance, and it's the ignorance that we're born with and that's flooded in every mind in the world, throughout the world. And that um, through some of these teachings, or should I say all of these teachings, we become aware to the truth of the way things are, internally and externally, and we have practices where we wake up and we no longer have to push the rock because we're awake in the moment that these patterns, these tendencies, where we go unconscious, where that kicks in, we're now awake. And we have a practice to counterbalance these unconscious repetitions that are sometimes unskillful, destructive, they don't serve us, they don't serve other people. And um, That's what kind of brings me here to practice all the time, every Sunday, you know, as much as possible. It's the beauty of waking up, waking up out of the dream and out of these unconscious states. So, a few examples um, some concrete examples of this, and then we'll explore a little bit. Uh, One from a story in a, in a book that I was reading of this um, father whose little girl comes home crying from school. And the story is um, she was being bullied and she defended herself and fought back. And in fighting back, the principal did not appreciate it. Uh, there must be a few teachers in the room. Um, and she was sent to detention with the bully. And the father had a reaction that was way bigger than the situation, and he had a desire to go to school and punch the principal in the face. It's a story of reactivity, right? So I'm giving you one incidence of reactivity. What is going on with this father? How did his brain get hijacked, and why? And have you ever had an angry reaction that did not fit the situation? Have you? Yeah, Yeah, me too. As a matter of fact, I have a really cool quote um, from Aristotle. Anyone can become angry, that's easy. But to be angry with the right person, to the right degree, at the right time, for the right purpose, and in the right way, that's not easy, right? Okay, so one is um, exploration of that reactivity your your emotional response does not fit the situation and it's bigger and it might be inappropriate and we all are suspecting right now that this has to do with something from his past maybe being bullied right he's triggered has anybody been triggered a <laughs> couple of hands up back there uh, has anyone been triggered
1: Yeah. You know.
0: <laughs> right okay And I'm proud of that. No. Uh, Okay. Um, Another example, a smaller example um, from one of my classes where someone um, talked about getting an email at work and reading the email, which is fairly neutral, and feeling threatened and getting all pumped up and hijacked over a neutral email. Has that experience happened to you? Yes. Happened to me this week. And it's so funny when it happens, if you're practicing a little bit of mindfulness, you can almost feel your body and your mind start freaking out. And, but there's a part of you going, hmm, this is interesting.
1: <laughs>
0: that's where you know the mindfulness is happening, because there's something watching. There is a quality of watching and holding the experience and not getting lost in it, right? So that's a very common one. I'll give you another you maybe can identify that with this. This one um, happened between um, myself and my husband. Um, he sees me reading books like this constantly, and the same books over and over again, Buddhist books, and making little notes and underlining. they are pieces of paper all over the house. you know. Um, I kind of enjoy it. And he said to me one night, he said, um, late at night, he said, well, you know, um, is all this reading getting you anywhere? <laughs> and then he went off to bed. And the women are laughing, right?
1: And uh,
0: I just, what a trigger that was. <laughs> So glad we have the same mind and the same brain. And I was just furious by the morning, but um, I had built this whole story of his judging or diminishing or whatever. You, I don't have to explain the story. And um, I remember going um, over to him, he was just drinking his coffee and being very, you know civil about this, and I had my um, good communication hat on, which is growth. I mean, it's taken a long time to put on the good communication hat. Let's not kid ourselves.
1: (laughs) Lots
0: of self-help books there, right? So, and I said, well, you know, when you said, I used the I statement, when you said, is all of this? Uh, reading, helping you, you know, I felt really kind of put down and I felt judged and, you know, the whole thing. And I, that, you know, I had the story in my head. It was just, it's a great story. And he said, uh, he just shrugged his shoulders, He said, no, I was just really curious if all the reading really helps. Like, you know, if you're on a spiritual path, how much meditation and silence helps and how much knowledge helps. And I wanted to know what's the balance. What's your experience? And it was totally with curiosity and openness, right? Like, oh, you just want to know, right? And we had this great conversation, because it was a good question, right? What's the balance between knowledge and studying and intellect? And what's the balance between practice and silence? What's intuitive? What's not? I mean, it's a great dialogue. And I thought, wow look how I could have railroaded us by this mind, just spinning a story. So there's another example. And one last one would be um, the dog story, um, which is um, about a long time ago, I I was a social worker in the field, so I drove and I went to people's houses. I don't mean to tell you self-stories, but this is the laboratory, you know. (laughs) It's the only thing I got, right, generally. Um, So it was a late afternoon. I was in the valley. It was hot. It was smoggy. There was traffic. I did not want to be there, and I had just come off actually, a meditation retreat, and I went to the back house in the yard, and um, there were two pit bulls that were supposed to be locked up, and the gate was open, and they charged me. Yeah, I'm here, and um, I did get attacked, and I do believe, although I will never be 100% certain, that the effects of the retreat helped me to survive, and helped get the dogs to calm, and that's another story. But I do believe that meditation helped to serve A situation that could have been a lot worse Mm. and I could tell that story another time but um, so so the dogs did bite me and I did go to the hospital you know it was kind of there was some drama there Mm. and um, about eight months later I was jogging in my neighborhood and um, there was a little tiny white poodle sitting um, with his family cutest little thing about this big off the leash And when I went by jogging, it started to kind of yip a little, yip, yip, and run after me. And before I could think, I turned around and screamed at the family. Mm -hmm. Will you put that dog on a leash? (laughs) And the man said, it's just a poodle, right? Well, that became a mantra for me when the um, fight, flight, or freeze part of my brain would kick in, or a fear or anxiety response or a negativity response would go into action before um, I could fully process. I would say to myself, and I'd laugh, and I'd say, it's just a poodle, right? There's a difference between a pit bull and a poodle. But sometimes we don't know that. And if you have had trauma, complex trauma, developmental trauma, 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 this is harder to unpack. So we must have a lot of patience, compassion, kindness, and gentleness with everything that's arising Um, because it's not easy to be human. You know, even in our privileged world where we have food and shelter and clothing and all sorts of wonderful things. It's still not easy. So let's look a little bit closer at what's going on, right? Why did it did that poodle trigger something from the past, right? Um, why can an email, ha- a neutral email, hijack your brain? And why could we misperceive a very interesting open question? Right? Why do we go there? That's it, talk's over.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we have to remember 50 000 to 70,000 thoughts per day, 35 to 48 thoughts per minute. 95 of them, 95% the same thoughts. And 80% negative. That negativity bias is alive, right? And it's connected to the central nervous system. And so very often we are having not just um, thoughts and emotions, we're having physiolo- physiolo- physiological states. It's a body mind complex. And That's what the Buddha said. Know the nature of the mind and body. What's happening? Mind, body. Mind, body. And that's why he talked about the four foundations of mindfulness. And the first one he emphasized as knowing the body. Mindfulness of the body. And that's why so many of our practices are around the breath, Walking, sitting postures, because a lot of this thoughts are moving so fast, and every thought has a reaction in the body. We're not catching a lot of these thoughts, and we're not even catching the feeling emotion, but you can catch a body sensation. I don't know about you, but I know when my jaw's locked and stiff. Right, I kind of know when I'm growling a little, you know, like your jaw's clenched, and you know there's tension in your shoulders. You know when your stomach is churning. There's a lot of ways your body tells you the truth of where you're at. Uh, but we're not used to, as a culture, being rooted in the body. We are lost in thought. We've talked about this all the time. It's getting to the point where there's never a new talk. <laughs> but there's always a new talk. So, um, so the Buddha taught contemplating the body as the body, knowing the sensations in the body. And um, then he talked about that's the first foundation of mindfulness. And the second is knowing the feeling tone, whether you're having a pleasant, unpleasant, or spaced out reaction to it, right? Like you open up that email, unpleasant, right? You're aware, unpleasant. And then maybe you get to see the next thing, which is the foundations of mindfulness, your thoughts and your emotions, right? Which are connected to the body. Um, and if you're aware and can name and know, then you are not fused and lost. Right? You have a chance to, be, to behave skillfully, to make choices, and to process in a healthy way. So, um, and then mindfulness of mind objects would be the fourth foundation of knowing all the conditions. Everything is conditioned. There is no absolute reality. It's all conditioned. We're all being flooded by our senses and thoughts, and it's changing all the time. So let me um, read you a little neuroscience from um, Linda Graham's book, Bouncing Back. Um, and I'll read a little bit of this, and then we'll stop. We'll, we'll stop here and talk a little bit. So. Um, The emotional brain makes decisions faster than the rational brain. So the problem is not so much that we are defective, right? Wendy, John, Philip, Mary, right? This I is defective. It's just the way we are hardwired and the different capacities of the brain. Um, So the emotions are these motivational systems that help us move fast, make deep connections with people and protect us and other people. It's not so bad. So all the emotions are impulses to act and um, she labels emotion E and then motion. So every time you have an emotion, there's a motion. There's something going through the body. There's an energy going through the body. That's something we can sense. So that's good news. Mm We can sense the motion, the wave of the emotion through the body. It's one way to become more aware, so we're not pushing the rock, Mm -hmm. right? The neurobiological roots of what we call feelings and emotions are simply waves of body sensations that signal us from the bottom up to pay attention to what is happening. It's telling us something important is happening. It's bottom up. Where's my body? Where's the body? Where's the mind? It's a different way of thinking, right? It's a little different. Um, but we love the rock, right? We love getting caught in the thought emotion. We love getting caught in our story, and that's why we don't feel the wave of emotion, or we're not connecting there. I, I um, like to watch commercials, I admit, and they're so painful, but what I notice... <laughs> That um, the people who make commercials, what they do, if you look, they create a story that generates an emotion in
1: you—a
0: uh, happy emotion usually, or or a fearful emotion—and then they sell you their product. They attach it to your desire. They're not dumb, right? They're studying this, right? Um, so this is what's happening. Okay, I'll read a little bit more. I won't put you to sleep, and then we'll stop. The sensations are filtered through the primitive emotional processing center of the amygdala, which is the one that's responsible for fight, flight, or freeze, and that's basically what the caveman had, right? Um, The lion comes, I get my club, you know, right, my spear, I run, or I freeze, right? And um, with this inherent negativity bias, it can lay a bad rap on the meaning of these sensations as they pass through the insula to the more complex part, which is the prefrontal cortex. So I think I'm looking at Julianne because she studied this too, right? That the mindfulness practice helps your neural pathway into the prefrontal cortex where you can decide what's skillful and unskillful and have a little more choice and think through things with a little more wholesome and equanimity, wisdom and equanimity. And that's kind of what we're doing in meditation, is we're strengthening that neural pathway past these more primitive parts of the brain into the more complex structure that can reason and think through. Right? Yeah. We're moving from impulsivity to equanimity, or, or she would say resilience. So our task is to learn when to listen to these emotions as guides and know them as adaptive, right? Um, I see a little child run in the street. I yank the kid back, right? Or um, uh, you think your partner says something judgmental and you want to snap his head off, right? Different. <laughs> different. I know somebody was telling me um, they got home after a a tough day of work and the dishwasher, his partner did not load the dishwasher correctly again, right? (laughs) And it's like the limbic system, like he, he just wanted a rush over and like was so, you know, the indignation, right? You have a hard day and then the next thing you know, you're with your partner and you're just you know, hostile and angry, or just resentful that a cup isn't placed correctly in the dishwasher. <laughs> <laughs> right. These are the systems that are operating, and it's the lack of awareness in the present moment, the mindfulness, this the avidya that is running us. So you can ask, what's running me, my limbic system? Or am I seeing through the moment clearly the difference? Am I seeing just the state, the mind that I'm bringing to the moment? So we need to learn when to realize that these emotions are based on an implicit memory of a previous situation that's no longer true, right? It was a poodle, not a pit bull, right? The man with the teacher and the principal who got bullied and now wanted to punch out the principal. Um, And then we get not to react. Instead of getting brain hijacked, stuck in the past, we learn to react with resilience and skillful action. We no longer have to push emotions away, repress, defend against them, and we don't have to go into a shame attack or feel inadequate, less than. We move towards that equanimity and skillful action, open to all of our experience, our full humanness. So what's happening for a lot of us based on our conditioning is that um, I'd say the average home where we're raising kids, where we've been raised, how many would say their families knew how to express and handle emotions? Raise your hand.
1: Express yes, handle no. <laughs> it's either one of the two, right? right? OK,
0: true or false, right? Somebody raising their hand? Oh, no, no, I'm sorry, I'm <laughs>
1: stretching. <laughs> OK,
0: so we, you only learn that through modeling. It, they say prefrontal cortex teaches prefrontal cortex, right? And most of us did not grow up into homes where emotions were safe to express. They could be processed. They could be understood, right? And handled with empathy and held and contained. Um, usually, something misfired, and that's what we call um, in Buddhism dukkha, suffering.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Something misfired. I know in my house, because you know I was going to talk about that, right? Uh, <laughs> the emotions were so big. We, I have, I came from a house of big emotions. You know, um, it was very dramatic. And some of it I really enjoyed. And there was a lot I did not enjoy. Um, But certainly nobody was regulating their emotion in that house, (laughs) not for a second. And then there are other people's homes where you can't have an emotion. You're just not allowed. The other side, that's suffering, right? Or there are other homes where the emotion you have, people tell you not to have it. Don't have that emotion. I say to parents when I teach a parenting class, how many of you have heard, um, stop crying or I'll give you something to cry about? And every parent goes, yeah, my parents said that, right? Um, So we're really good at telling people not to have them, don't have the ones you have, don't handle them effectively, don't have empathy for them, and even more, don't Give yourself the time to have your emotions make sense and connect with your body or your thought or your um, what's ever happening. So we're dysregulated, generally, as a, I want to say, as a race. <laughs> because if you look at the world, I think you would agree with me that we are all dysregulated to one degree or another. Okay. So a little bit more, and then. So I won't go into more of the neuroscience. It's fascinating, Um, but what I will say, I have like another page or two of it. I got really jazzed up about it. Um, What I will say about this is that when you think about all of the elements of mindfulness. It really is a pathway to repair the brain. That's why we talk about neuroplasticity. It creates a certain flexibility. By the very things we do in mindfulness, that stopping, pausing, getting into the body, taking a breath, ask what's happening, you know, using awareness to look at the mind, to look at the body and the mind, right? and um, then leaning in towards wisdom and equanimity and skillful action, no harm to self or other. But even more so, what I love about the mindfulness practice, and there's so much research on mindfulness and emotion regulation and um, the health of the brain. It's ridiculous, and body. But even more so, um, what I think is most significant is not only do we pause and look, but we bring through the practices compassion, loving kindness for ourselves and everyone else, that we really have another way of holding all of this. right? We have another way of being with all of this that really is the way in which we all wish we were held. right? We all wish and long for being held with kindness compassion. We all wish to be understood and loved unconditionally. We all wish uh, to be known and seen and to be safe. It's normal wishes. And the practice gives us that capacity to hold ourselves in this way. And in doing so, we hold everybody else in this way. Mm -hmm. So as we wake up, we get to spread that, because from what I've read, the prefrontal cortex, this is a shared experience, right? As I heal my neural pathway, I heal yours, right? When I'm awake to the way things are, I I give you some light, because this is what we do. We're in it together. So. so the moral of the story is if there is one we we can put down the rock
1: mm-hmm.
0: right we can put down the rock we could let the rock roll down the hill and the only way we're going to do that is through our practice through waking up unless you really love the rock. And somehow I don't want to stop talking right now, but I will. Because um, I want to say one more thing th- about that. Is um, Eckhart Tolle talks about this. I'm looking at Krishna because we did a lot of studying of that. Is that he talks about the pain body, which I think is brilliant.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, and he talked about it before, I think, this neuroscience came into mm-hmm. being. And um, one of his points about the pain body is that the pain body wants more. Mm -hmm. It likes the food of pain and suffering, which is kind of what was written in this book, right? It likes it, it wants more, it feeds, looks for drama, Mm
1: -hmm.
0: looks for a self-story where you're kind of a victim or a self-righteous story, and likes to feed on it and perpetuate it so we know we're alive maybe, right? So... We do need to drop the rock. We do need to let go of the story. We do need to repair that negativity bias and find other ways of feeling alive that are more subtle. So we're not constantly feeding that pain body experience to create a self. And that's why we come together and do this together so we can remind each other how to do that. It's not a solo thing. So, we have a little bit of time for some dialogue. Anybody have anything they would like to share?
1: Do you think it matters if it's, when you're talking about the rock, whether it's circumstances holding it or us holding it or us pushing it? It sort of sounds like both of whatever it is, it's the mindfulness and the awareness that helps sort of, See, give a space to it. I mean, do you think it really matters if it's, you know,
0: choice or the artist of circumstance? Well, um, it can be a choice and it can be a circumstance, right? It could be either one. It's causes and conditions, Um, and. I would say, and somebody else can answer this too, I would say keep investigating. Because every member of the guest house, every opportunity is something delivered to us to be known. So the answer to that would be keep investigating.
1: Yeah, Yes, I hope this makes sense. Um, I think sometimes, uh, I, I don't love the rock, but part of me believes I need the rock. So when you started the myth, and I pictured a very large boulder. And what would happen if, he, if I were to let go of that rock? I don't see it slowly rolling to the bottom, and I can walk away. I see it rolling over me. Mm-hmm. So then I somehow believe I wouldn't exist, or who would I be without that rock? Mm-hmm. I, I need it, but I want to need it. But I keep pushing it, because I don't know what would happen if I let go. Make any sense? -hmm. Totally. Do you agree? Does that make total sense? Yes. Total,
0: total sense. Yes. That's right. So it just keeps me stuck there. Yes. Anyway. Um, We're not really hardwired to, I think, I I suppose, to love the unknown. Mm. Right? Mm. The unknown is difficult for us. Um, there's a beautiful quote from James Baldwin about when you take that first step on a journey, how terrifying it is to embrace the unknown. I'll have to find it. Thank you. The great question. You have just listened to a recording from Insight LA in Long Beach. For more information, please visit us at insightla.org.